good? All right. The high priest was uh, the, the priest that represented God's people every day on Yom Kippur where he'd offer the, the sacrifice for the, the sins of Israel one time a year. And here we see Jesus being slapped for, for answering the high priest in a way this gentleman decided was, uh, one of these officials decided was a means in which was too, uh, uh, you know, it was too rude. You shouldn't treat the high priest that way. And again, we see another bit of irony being played out because we know Jesus is the high priest. He is the fulfillment of the high priest. He is the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Without beginning or end, he is our one mediator between God, man, as we've discussed in Sunday school again this morning, who sits at the right hand of the Father forever making intercession for us. And yet, he's slapped because of his direct answer towards this human high priest. Irony of ironies. In verse 23, I have spoken wrongly, Jesus answered. If I have spoken wrongly, Jesus answered him, give evidence about the wrong, but if rightly, why do you hit me? They had nothing on Jesus. And then Aeneas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Aeneas is the father-in-law again. And then we have the split screen going back to Peter being played out here in John 18, 25 through 27. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. They said to him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. There's the second one on the... Verse 26, one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Peter denied it again. And immediately the rooster crowed. In John 13, Jesus told Peter that's exactly what he would do. Peter stood in his self-righteousness, his physical ambition, and says, Lord, I will die for you. I'll go to the cross. And here he is denying the Lord three times just as the Lord said he would. John doesn't record what's happening in Peter's heart at this time as he's realized what he's just done. But the other Gospels do. Luke provides a vivid account of what Peter was feeling and, and experiencing during this time. And so we have the same account here in Luke chapter 22, 59 through 62. And this is the, the last denial that, he, that he's portraying here in verse 59. About an hour later, another kept insisting this man was certainly with him, since he's also a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Now look what happens here in Luke. Luke records that the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Could you imagine that glance? that eye-to-eye stare as that rooster's crowing or just after. And so Peter remembered the word of the Lord. He had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. In verse 62, he went outside and wept bitterly. I don't know about you, but I can identify with Peter. I don't know how many times I feel like I just fall so drastically short and disappoint my God so many times in my own strength and my own power I, I try, try, I try only to fail only to feel like I've let him down time and time again and it's so easy for us as Christians to feel that way and so if there's anything we get out of this, this, the, this historical narrative this morning I hope that you will see that 
that God, uh, Jesus allowed this opportunity of brokenness in Peter's life, but he used it as the story goes on, as this narrative goes on, he uses it as a chance for redemption and forgiveness for Peter through what Jesus has done, will do on the cross for Peter and for us. We have redemption and we have salvation and we have a means in which we are identified in Christ's righteousness and not of our own. That is the good news of the gospel. God doesn't look at our failures and measures us in those or our unrighteousness. Those of us who are in Christ Jesus, we are enrobed and wrapped in Christ's righteousness. It is a gift, an undeserved gift, this salvation that he has purchased for us. And so many times we're like Peter, we, we just come to the point where we, all we can do is weep. But the story of the gospel is there's rescue and redemption in the work of Jesus. In Jesus, there's mercies afresh and anew every morning for the people of God because we're wrapped in him. And so that's encouraging to me. I hope it is for you as well. We come back here, Jesus before Pilate. In John chapter 18, verses 28 through 38, then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They did not enter the headquarters themselves, otherwise they, they would be defiled and unable to eat the Passover. And so Pilate came out to them and said, what charge do you bring against this man? And he answered them, him, if this man weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. It's pretty general, right? Pilate told them, you take him and add and judge him according to your law. Well, it's not legal for us to put anyone to death, the Jews declared. They said this so that Jesus' words might be fulfilled, indicating what kind of death he was going to die. We know in John's account, he told the disciples many times, I'm going to be risen up on a cross. Just as Moses lifted the staff in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And all those who look to him and look to his accomplished work will be saved. And so this is just the fulfillment of what Jesus has already declared, how he was going to die. We talked last week about resting in the sovereignty of God and the gospel's narrative is just, a, just, a, just, just drenched with the sovereignty of God that although things are chaotic and although it looks like evil is abounding and winning, God is in control. This wasn't taking Jesus by surprise. And then verse 33, Then Pilate went back into the headquarters, summoned Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you asking this on your own, or have others told you about me? I am not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied. Your own nation and the chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? His response, my kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I would be handed over, wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Yet again, the irony being played out. Jesus is a king. He's just not an earthly king. He's just not another earthly king. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. 
His kingdom is not of this sin-tarnished creation. His kingdom is from above, right? John chapter 8, he tells the religious leaders, I am from above. You are from beneath. You are of this world. I am not of this world. And so, again, the irony being played out that this king that Pilate is talking to is the very king of all kings, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Verse 37, you are a king, then Pilate asks you. You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied. I was born for this, and I have come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. I pray that can be you today, that you can testify to the fact that you are of Jesus and you listen, everyone who is of the truth listens to his voice, that you will listen to the voice of Jesus as the true inspired words are, 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 are read and, and uh, preserved for us in God's word. All those who follow after Jesus are to listen to his words and to his voice. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus came to testify of the truth. And what is Pilate's response? What is truth? And we know he wasn't expecting an answer because we see that he just left. And after he said this, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no grounds for charging him. He wasn't expecting an answer because really there's nothing new under the sun. Just as in the days of Pilate, where the Greek philosophy for philosophers would stand on Mars Hill and philosophize about all these different things, that there was really no sense or absolute truth that that could be could, could people could come down to in the in the Greek uh, um, background and uh, and the, the many gods uh, the. Uh, many gods and all the, the things that they believed. There was no sense of absolute truth. And so we see Pilate's response to Jesus as saying that, what is truth? And as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun because we find ourselves some 2,000 years later in a society that projects the same thing. There's no such thing as truth. Truth is just relative what is truth? It really depends on what you define as truth. There's no such thing as absolute truth. It's called a postmodern society. It is what is taught in most colleges in America and around the world today. Postmodernists deny that there are aspects of reality that are objective. and They deny that there are statements about reality that are objectively true or false. They deny that it is possible to have knowledge of such statements that it is possible for human beings to know something with certainty. They deny that. And they're, that, they're, they're, that there are objective and absolute moral values. They deny the absence of the, or the presence of those objective, absolute moral values. It's the society we find ourselves in today where truth is just defined in your own self. But yet... Jesus says, I've come to testify of the truth. We know that Jesus declared himself to be truth, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is absolute truth. God has preserved it and revealed it to us in his word. We, we can stand on God's truths. But before we, we go down that path, what, what are the fruits of this postmodern society? 
find ourselves in a society today that embraces the idea that there's no such thing as absolute truth. This has led to a point in our society where the institution of marriage that God created in his word has been completely obliterated. The traditional definition of marriage between a man and a woman has been cast aside. In this era of there's no such thing as absolute truth, there's no such thing as moral absolutes. Our society has perverted the beautiful and amazing gift of sex between a husband and a wife and has changed it into a mere pursuit of pleasure with anyone and everyone. It's the same thing that the Greeks were dealing with back in Jesus' day. There's nothing new under the sun. But our fruit is this. In the U.S., pornography is a $16.7 billion, billion dollar industry a year. Every day, there's 37 pornographic videos created in the United States. 2.5 billion emails containing porn are sent and received every day. And this is a pornography, as I've said, across the table from marriages completely blown up because of pornography addiction. It's devastating to a family. And society thinks it's no big deal. To have to have a woman to be objectified like that, you turn into an object. Instead of the beautiful creation that God had fashioned, to have to have a wife try to measure up to what her husband might have seen it's disgusting. And that's the fruits of everyone gets to find to define their own truth. Even the very definitions of what it means to be male and female are being challenged and changed in our society today. Because all truth is relative after all. Today, specifically this time period, we find ourselves in a society that wags the finger and accuses those who don't wear a mask in public as those who are unloving towards other people while that same majority stands by while over 62 million babies have been aborted since World vs. Wade in 1973. What about that neighbor? What about that life? These are the consequences of no absolute truth that our society is reaping as we speak. The Christian, we have absolute truth. We have the truth in knowing that there is a God who has an absolute standard, and all of us have violated that standard. Whether you're in porn addiction or whether you're, you've been affected in, from abortion from the past, pick your poison. I have many. The truth is we all fall short of the glory of God. We have all sinned. But there's good news for everyone to receive Jesus as their Savior and believe and trust in his accomplished work alone. That is the truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by him, and there's nothing that you have done in this world that stands outside of what Jesus has done for you on the cross. 
He desires to extend to you eternal life. He paid your penalty for you. He took your shame for you so that you might be made new in Jesus and adopted into his family. That is the truth. Yes, there is an absolute law. Guess what? We've all failed. But the good news of the gospel is he's made a way. Jesus' high priestly prayer we talked about, his prayer to the Father for us was that we'd be set aside, made holy through truth. And he says, God's word is truth. And Jesus is the very embodiment, the very personality of God's truth in flesh. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Paul is a, was a, before he became saved, most people know that he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He used to go around persecuting Christians. He was like uh, trained by the best rabbi of the time and he checked all the boxes as far as being religious as far as knowing the law and all, all that you had to do to be a he was the pharisee of pharisees right he describes himself but then he encountered christ and he saw that his self-righteousness was nothing in the eyes of a holy god and he was broken and completely destroyed over his sin in the eyes of a holy God. He thought he was self-righteous, and then he encountered Christ, and through the power of the Spirit and the conviction of the Spirit, he saw who he truly was. He was broken. He was broken just like Peter. He was broken just like me 14 years ago. He was broken just like you. And then he writes to Timothy saying, look, this is a, in 1 Timothy 1, 15 through 8, this is saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. It's trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he describes himself to be the worst of them. I say I can give him a run for his money. Verse 16, but I have received mercy for this reason, so that in me the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Christ used Paul's story to be an example for others who would feel ashamed and broken. He used Paul for an example, and so my question to you today is, what is your story? Whose example can you be? of what God has done for you in this beautiful picture of salvation that God has given us through Jesus. Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example of those who believe in him for eternal life. And so what is Paul's response as he writes to Timothy and begins to say, this is what Jesus did for me and he's using me as an example Paul's natural reaction is to praise his God and Savior. We see that here. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What a great salvation he's given us. 
what a great opportunity he's given us to be his light in the world. Let's pray. Father God, unto you, our King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Brother Jim, we're going to have a time of imitation. This is a time for you to respond to what the Spirit might have put on your heart in song or in prayer. If you do not know Jesus as Savior, if you have not had that personal encounter with him, I'd love to have the honor to show you from Scripture how that can be a reality in your life today through Scripture.